Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Thank you so much for hanging out with me in the Freedom Hut. Uh, let's get right to it. Democrats celebrating over the course of the weekend. You could see them doing their various victory dances all over the place, on TV, on social media. They are just thrilled that the Trump administration has stumbled with its first major legislative effort, the repeal and replace of Obamacare. Uh, as you know, it did not happen. They pulled the bill because they were about 20 votes shy. They needed 216 in the House. And the 35-member-ish House Freedom Caucus was one of the important impediments to getting it even past the House. It would have seen also problems in the Senate. It was a problematic bill. Those of you who listen to this show, who spend time with me here in the hut, know that I was not uh, not pleased with this. And we've had on various uh, healthcare wonks and experts to break down the details. The long and the short of it is that there are too many in the Republican Party who want to maintain a transactional nature to their votes and to the politics of the GOP, meaning they offer people stuff for votes, or perhaps another way to look at it, they refuse to take stuff away from people for fear of losing votes. It is that kind of narrow and self-interested approach to political activity that gets us to a place where the Trump administration does not even get to first base on repeal and replace. Gets up to swing the bat and sits back down, says, nah, I don't want to play today. Right, I'm going to get struck out. This is not good, my friends, but it's not terrible either. Let's also keep this all in perspective. I'm reading all, all the think pieces, all of the think pieces out there about oh, what happens now. Trump's going to move on to taxes. And if that doesn't work, well, then the administration's just over. No, not true. The administration would not be over even if they ran into some headway on taxes. Now, I do think there were a number of strategic errors that were made in this process. For one, telling us all that you had to deal with Obamacare first before taxes was not the way to go because now they're saying, eh, forget about Obamacare, let's do taxes. That seems like quite a quick switch. Um, but also... I'm sure many of you are looking at your taxes for the year, your tax bills, spending time perhaps either tallying up yourself or speaking to an accountant if you are so lucky as to be able to afford one. And this would be a great time to hammer home that we are we are having far too much money taken out of our pockets by the government. Now, the Trump tax reform, as I understand it, is going to largely be about corporate tax reform, the corporate tax rate in the United States is the highest in the industrialized world, and there are a lot of benefits to the economy that would come from lowering it. But much more exciting to me is a, or would be, a vast simplification of the tax code, which is 70,000-ish pages. I don't know the exact number. I don't think anyone knows the exact number. I'm sure it 
is constantly uh which depends on what kind of font you use but it's a lot it's many it's tens of thousands of pages um, because it is a massive instrument for cronyism for special interests for special favors and yes for social engineering if you really want to drain the swamp you should have a tax code that is one page and I have to say, I am a little frustrated that even with this administration, with its drain the swamp narrative and mantra, I do believe that there is a real intent to do what they can to limit the power of the federal government and its intrusive policies, its extra constitutional actions. But if you really want to do it, you don't just change some parts of the tax code. You dramatically upend and restart the tax code you go back to, to phase one because right now we're in phase a thousand i mean we're we need to go back to alpha we are at omega with the tax code it is insane but this is uh, the rumors of the administration's demise are much exaggerated at this point and there is going to be a movement now i think on tax reform that will be useful um, uh, we're not done with healthcare, by the way. I just want to say that while they're talking about how this is such a huge blunder and such a huge defeat, keep in mind that, you know, the resignation of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, General Flynn, was taken as a huge defeat for the administration. And well, like a week later, you had General McMaster in there and everybody's like, well, this is fantastic. I mean, so resiliency, I can say this from my uh, short or long, depending on the day you talk to me, 35 years of existence. Uh, resiliency and persistence are two of the most important ingredients for success in life. True of individuals, true of political movements, certainly true of administrations. You got to come back from getting a few rough, uh, rough hits and you got to stay on task. Resiliency and persistence will, uh, or resilience and persistence will get you very far in life and in politics. So the Trump administration had a bad Friday. Big whoop. They are going to move on to other issues now, although we can't leave health care completely out of the discussion because it seems to me that you have two simultaneous narratives from the White House. One is that they will reach out to Democrats on health care, and I, I hope that is merely a messaging ploy. I hope that they're not serious about that because I can tell you right now the Democrats are not going to do anything on Obamacare other than funnel more tax dollars into it, expand the Medicaid coverage that has already been a vast expansion of Medicaid, and spend us further and further into oblivion. Anything that is not that the Democrats, House or Senate, want no part of. So the reports that you're seeing from the Trump administration that they have an interest in reaching out to the the center and trying to get centrist Democrats to come along, good Look, Obamacare is not just about health care. It is about control. It is about the state dictating so much more of your life than it should be able to. And I mean the big S state, the federal government state. And it's also the legacy of the Democratic Party right now, not just President Obama himself, but the Democratic Party when it had unrestrained control of the House and the Senate and, of course, a leftist progressive president in the White House. They will not they will not find some centrist path. That is a fantasy. OK, the other thing I'm hearing is that they want to watch Obamacare burn itself down, that it is in a death spiral. And now the White House will allow that to play out. Well, I have concerns about that, too. First of all, 
Uh, we've got spy before we get into the death spiral side of it. Let's we've got Spicer out there today in a press conference. Spicy laying it down, saying that they are open to working with Dems. Is the president serious about working with Democrats going That's forward after what happened with health care? Absolutely. In fact, um, starting Friday afternoon through late yesterday, he's received a number of calls as well as other members of the senior staff uh, that had been working on health care uh, from members of both sides saying that they would like to work together, offer up ideas, um, and had suggestions about how to uh, come to resolution on this and get to a House vote on this. It's a trap, Trump team. I can promise you that. Any Democrat that wants to work with the Republicans on health care just wants to spend more, give away more, redistribute more, and make all the problems that we currently see worse. Uh, then you can also look at where the Democrat Party is headed in response to this. They're not saying Republicans just needed to be a little more centrist, a little more realistic in their approach, and then maybe it would have worked. No, while we on our side have people saying that we need to be more realistic and it would have been an incremental improvement and we need to take we need to take base hits, not always go for home runs on their side of things. They're going hard left in response to the health care problems that exist under Obamacare. You got Bernie Sanders just straight up saying, forget about centrism, forget about going down the middle. Single payer, baby. That's what he wants. Of course, Obamacare has serious problems. Deductibles are too high. Premiums are too high. The cost of health care is going up All at true. a much faster All rate true. than it should. Ideally, what where we should be going is to join the rest of the industrialized world and guarantee health care to all people as okay. a right. And that's why I'm going to introduce a Medicare for all single-payer program. Short-term, this is what we could do. Single-payer. How many of us said at the start of the Obamacare debate and discussion that this would be the Democrats' play, that eventually, because the incentives, the, the, the incentives for the marketplace that do still exist, of course, a lot of this is dictated by the government and that it exists in what is a, a market that is a, a funhouse mirror market. It, nothing is really what it is. Uh, but what does exist is an incentive for people to or for insurers to stop offering plans because they're going to lose money on the plans because you have people who are uh, overwhelmingly sick and in need of care and high levels of care signing up for these insurance exchange individual market plans. And you have people that don't want to pay for insurance that's not good because the coverage is not good. The actual care is not good. They'd rather pay the fine. So they're staying out. And sure, they can ratchet up those fines and try to bring the numbers closer to what they want. But they've been wrong on the numbers for Obamacare all along. And now here we are. Now here we are recognizing that premiums, as Bernie Sanders says, are too high. That the cost of health care, even for, for those on the Obamacare plans, is too much. People are losing their plans and losing their plans and losing their plans. It just doesn't work. They promise you something for nothing. It is a lie. It is a falsehood, a fabrication, a political mirage. They cannot deliver with Obamacare what they have been promising to deliver all along. And yet, the response, the answer you get from Democrats after what happened with the Republicans last week is not... We're just going to make things a little better. No, it's double down on statism and federal government control. It's put Uncle Sam in charge of even more of the health care market. 
It is even from Nancy Pelosi at a town hall calling for single payer. Please come out, Speaker Pelosi, and say, we support single payer. That's our aim. That's what we're going for. In the Affordable Care Act, in certain respects, we have gone to the left of Medicare for all. Medicare, yes, yes, yes. Do you want to listen or do you just want to speak? The Affordable Care Act, we have gone to the left of... She's saying to the... Remember, Bernie Sanders uses Medicare for all as a synonym for single payer. You got Nancy Pelosi here saying, well, we've gone to the left of that single payer, i.e. Medicare for all program. She says it's even more progressive than that. This is their answer. This is their response. So we need to keep this in mind while we hear the White House talking about how maybe we can work with Democrats to get this done. I don't see that happening. One unfortunate lesson that I suppose the White House had to learn, the Trump administration had to learn here, is that say what you will about Democrats. They are a block. They move as one. They are a a living, breathing, progressive organism of status, domination, and control. They march in lockstep. They do as they are told. They are a party organism, a party mechanism. Meanwhile, Republicans... We squabble. We, you know, what are we going to do? Who's going to get elected and who's not the next time around? Who's conservative and who's not? And I'm not saying that people should abandon their principles and just go along with what the party wants. But somehow Democrats, with all their varied interests and constituencies, when it comes to core fundamental legislative issues, the future of our health care system, they all, to a man and woman, move together like a well-trained army on the Hill and in the White House, and Republicans, it's just intramural squabbling. It's, well, I don't know about this. Eh." We can't get it done. They go big, they go bold. Yes, it's destroying the country, but on our side, what do we offer? Well, it didn't work this time. Maybe we'll go for something else next time. Not good enough. It's not good enough. And they're talking about single-payer. All right, uh, 844-900-844-900. 2825-844-900-BUCK. I want to hear your thoughts on this, and we got a lot more to cover. Need to watch uh, Democrats talk about how Obamacare is not in a death spiral. Um, it, it's, it's amazing to, to see the justifications. They talk about the, the numbers of covered as though that all of a sudden fixes all the problems. If you have a terrible plan, and if it's too expensive, and if your deductible is too high for you to get any care, and if you can't see any doctors in your area, and if your plan changes year in and year out, that that's not a victory for anybody who is a sane, rational, normal person. It's not just about whether you have a little piece of paper that says you have health coverage, uh, you have health insurance. It's not. We should really stop calling it insurance. It's just health care. This is just health care w- with different subsidy mechanisms built into it but it's not really about insurance anymore it's a, when you're going to the doctor for strep throat and, and giving that to your insurer that's not health insurance that's just health care uh, which is another debate another discussion that nobody seems to want to have openly and honestly which is part of the problem here but the obamacare plans are too all-encompassing they insist on too wide an array of benefits for people the obamacare plans are too expensive for what they really offer. And the market mechanisms in these exchanges are such that younger people are paying for older or younger people are paying for the care of older people and healthy people are paying for the care of sick people and they realize that and they don't want to they don't want to do it. 
so there are so many ways to look at this as a failure, and it, it really comes down to the most basic and obvious truths. Nothing is free. You know, ain't no, th- ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Um, that that if you understand that concept, or if you understand econ one hundred and one, or the most basic laws of supply and demand, you understand why Obamacare is not working. And that's why you'll you'll see Democrats aren't really proposing uh, just to make Obamacare better. You got Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders, and I'm sure others too, who are just talking about a a system where the government starts paying your health care bills. And we're $20 trillion in debt. The Trump budget that came out a few weeks ago would have been running close to a half a trillion dollars in the red anyway. And we just assume that this can go on forever. But the problem with that logic is it's wrong or with that reasoning is that it's wrong. Eventually, all things that must come to an end will come to an end. And spending and putting this burden, this financial burden on future generations is not something you can keep up. I don't know. This is, it's uh, there are other f- more uh, you know, fiery and feisty things we can talk about, but healthcare is not just so important to each one of us as individuals because we all have to deal with being sick and loved ones who get sick, and we understand that we're all interacting in the healthcare system. Look, I mean, even when you talk about taxes, half the people in this country don't pay any federal income tax, so that's that's already more of a of a uh, a subset, more of a a niche issue, if you will, than healthcare is. Which is astonishing in and of itself that half half of uh, people in this country don't pay taxes uh, of any kind, or don't pay income taxes. They're like, oh, fuck, that pays, you know, they pay sales tax. Right, I know, but don't pay any. I'd like to just pay sales tax. That sounds like fun. Why don't we try that for a while? Um, and, and the fact that we don't even have a discussion going on about a fair tax or a flat tax, it's just a corporate tax change and maybe some nibbling around the edges of the individual rates. It's just not, it's just not bold enough. They, you know, they ha- it's go big or go home here when you have the House and you have the Senate and you have a Republican in the White House promising what would be a transformative agenda. I know President Obama is the one who used the word transformative or fundamentally transforming this country. And so we shy away from that specific rhetoric. But if Trump did the things that he promised to do, it would have a massive impact on this country. Did anyone think that that was going to be easy? or straightforward, or without opposition, or without risk. One of the things that I find so disheartening about what's happened with Republicans in D.C. in the last week is that at the end of the day, many of them are more concerned with their reelection than with making health care better in this country for all Americans. Enough of them, and I'm not blaming the, uh, I'm not blaming the Freedom Caucus here. I'm talking about the Republicans that were pushing this bill that wasn't really a free market bill. That was keeping a lot of the goodies, that wanted to keep the handouts, that wanted to keep the keep the sweets, you know, the plate of cookies. They wanted to just keep on doling those out. That's a problem, especially when for years and over 60 votes, you've been telling the American people, screaming from the rooftops, how you just can't wait to get in there and repeal this thing. And now you created an opening for Democrats to do what they've always wanted, which is to just push for single payer, which will bankrupt this country over the long run. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 
Welcome back, team. 844-900-2825. We have Mike in Texas on the iHeart app. What's up, Mike? Hi, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Hey, I was just wondering if I could uh, give you a quick, just about a 10-second, five-point plan for solving this health care crisis. I mean, sh- sure, we can give you even more time than that, but go for it. Brevity is Brevity is a good thing. Okay, sir. Uh, first off, have the president sign an executive order mandating all medical services have straightforward pricing available to the consumer, just like everything else we buy. Totally agree. Number two, allow all medical service providers to compete for consumers nationwide. That's doctors, hospitals, as well as insurance providers. I'm with you. And pick who we're going to work with. Number three, allow all drug companies and pharmacies to compete nationwide. Again, allowing the consumer to shop for their prescription needs. And now for the politically minded public servant, number four, provide an avenue for the indigent to apply for government health care benefits along with all the other freebies they get from the taxpayer. And number five, those that have pre-existing conditions and are not indigent but can afford coverage, they can buy coverage from those willing to provide it. Or, A, they can join a cooperative. B, get it from an employer group plan. Or C, C number four above. And I think everyone would be satisfied except the politicians, of course, want to hand out goodies for votes. Well, that's what we saw happening here, by the way. And this is where I think uh, the concern shouldn't be so much whether the Trump administration has the political acumen, the, the skills, the inside the beltway, D.C., backroom, handshake, all that stuff. No, it's I, I think there are a lot of Republicans who just do not want the things that they say they want, meaning that they talk a big game about the Constitution and limited government, and uh, but really they want to bring stuff back for their state or for their district, and they don't want to be held responsible for stopping the the train of goodies from Uncle Sam for people that are getting them. And I think that's true. And by the way, when I say the goodie train, I don't mean to just say that this is for people that are getting stuff from the government in the form of welfare benefits. I'm talking about cronyism, corporate welfare, the corporatism that exists, all of that, too. You see the way that—who do we really think is getting stuff in this— by the way, we checked at the break, the tax code. I said 70,000-ish pages. I was right. 74,608 pages was what we were able to find as a fact check online here from the Washington Examiner. So almost 75,000 page long tax code. Do we think that there are a lot of people, uh, there are a lot of corporations and special interests that have tucked away in there uh, their own little goodies? I think, Mike, you know the answer to that. So there's. Well, but, just even for people like myself, uh, the tax code is pretty much designed to make it so you don't really understand what you're paying. That's right. So that's, that's right. not straightforward. Because if it's not straightforward, a lot of us are going to pay a lot more and not complain about this or that when we could easily say, hey, if it's 10 percent or 12 percent or whatever it is, everybody pays that whether you make $100 or 100000 And, you know, we know what we're paying. But at this rate, I'm trying to figure my taxes out now. Yeah, obfuscation is, a, obfuscation is an invitation to corruption, Mike. Thank you very much for calling in. Appreciate it. Shields high. And what I mean by that is the moment that you have – an inability for the public. And by the way, this is not on the public. Uh, you know, you've seen these paper, uh, these uh, news stories they'll do about, you know, two professors of mathematics with degrees from MIT who are saying, I, I don't know if I'm doing my taxes right. Just FYI, I'm trying, but who, you know, who knows? The tax authorities don't know if you're doing your taxes right. And by the way, all this stuff about, oh, health care, and it's, please, the moment you get into reasonable and customary, he- here- here's a, riddle me this, someone, explain this one to me. 
when you go in and you have covered services under your plan, and this is not just for individuals in the Obamacare market or anywhere else in the individual market. This is in general. You'll have reasonable and customary. Well, the insurers and the providers play this game where they won't. T- and I've gone through this process before. Where you'll get on the phone with your insurance company, you're like, "Look, I, I need to have this. I need to have this procedure done. It's medically necessary. You guys have approved me for it, but I need to know what's reasonable and customary in terms of payment. That's the phraseology they use: reasonable and customary, uh, because otherwise, I'm on the hook for whatever the shortfall is. They won't tell you, and the reason they won't tell you is because they're afraid that doctors will game the system and just go to the max of reasonable and customary. So, I mean, th- this is just th- people are playing games here." And they're playing games because we have this vast system of political patronage. That's, that is what this is. Let's start thinking about this in terms of corruption, in terms of special dealing, in terms of special interests that are calling the shots in D.C. Let's not cede to the Democrats, oh, special interests. You know, for them, special interests are like you know, a, carbon, a carbon fuel-based economy. That's a special interest. No, that's just a modern economy. But I digress. Let's not let them be the only ones who talk about how the system is corrupted because it's a very real thing. It is a very real concern. And the more you look into healthcare right now, you just see that you can't get straightforward answers, whether it's taxes or healthcare. And these are the areas where the legislative branch is asserting so much control and authority and pretends like it asserts none. You know, this is, it's amazing. You see this also, by the way, with immig- you know, on immigration, the Congress can pass any laws at once. Uh, it wants to. Meanwhile, they don't enforce the laws in the books because, you know, uh, the Democrats act like they're racist and Republicans want cheap labor. And they go, oh, these laws. I mean, these laws are crazy. You guys write the laws. Change the laws. Oh, no, these laws. I can't, uh, I can't do that. OK, well, what about on health care? You create this this enormous system, this machinery of Obamacare. It's it, uh, problems all over the place. And how do you fix it? Oh, no. We, we, you know, it's, it's too tough. And we just, we need to go to, we need to go to single payer. We can't just fix this thing. I mean, whoever built this was crazy. You guys built it. Congress built it. Democrats, but still. And the same thing on the tax code. Oh, the tax code. So let's just all be very clear on this other point. The Congress can build a 75,000 page long internal revenue service code, a 75,000 page long tax code. And that's normal to them. That's the status quo. But you talk about 100 pages or five pages or a page, and you're like a crazy person. Oh, whoa, 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 this guy, somebody better have a chat with him. This guy needs help. Why? Why is the tax code 75,000 pages? One, I would like one person to make, oh, well, if you want to be funding all kinds of different programs and having the government picking things, well, let's have a little incentive here, a little incentive there. Let's tweak this and let's add to that. Let's take here. Let's add, let's put there. It is just an enormous excuse for government meddling. Don't we all see that? And self-dealing by the people that are writing in parts of the tax code that either help their constituency or in some cases even help themselves. Look up, you know, what goes on with some of the federal spending and the Nancy Pelosi's of the world. So when do we have an honest discussion about this? Do we just we assume that the Republican Party is going to make all of this better? I don't think so. We need to return to first principles here. We need to return to just what is a normal, engaged American patriot going to think of this policy decision or that policy decision? What does a normal person paying their bills, 
trying to support their family, trying to live their lives day to day. What do they think of this stuff? The moment that I need somebody whose only job in life is to interpret a law that I have to live under, whether it's Obamacare or the tax code or any number of things, we've already lost. The moment that we commit ourselves to a tyranny of experts who aren't even really experts, oftentimes they're just pretending to be, we've got big problems. Healthcare, taxes, you name it. I mean, I, I'm here in Drain the Swamp. And that would be radical. D.C. is, as you know, literally geographically a swamp. And any of you who, as I have, have lived there for a summer will tell you that that is quite true. Uh, And now, of course, in the metaphorical sense, they want to drain the swamp. Okay, that's radical. It's a swamp that's been building for decades. Why do we we're going to what get get, you know, or uh, universal consensus? We're going to bring Democrats on board here. We're going to. No, you're going to if you're all the rhetoric I heard from the Trump campaign and Republicans running for office in many cases on the coattails of the Trump campaign was, oh, no, we're going to throw punches. We're going to do this. We're for we're for real this time. Now we are going to push back against this with all of our might against the creeping statism and seemingly benevolent, but seemingly benevolent tyranny that is really like a giant federal boa constrictor that is cutting off the oxygen to the American economy and our freedoms. But it does it slowly. It constricts over time, and it tries to lull us to sleep in the process. All right, Team Buck, we got some calls lighting up the board in here. We have Ted in Florida on WFLA. What's up, Ted? Hey, I'd like to say it's just about time that we take this old bill the Obamacare and just get rid of it. We had survived without it before. Why can't we do it again? Well, that was what they were promising, right? They said repeal and replace. They didn't say take a little piece of it here and a little piece of it there, but leave other pieces of it because we like it. That was not the promise. That is correct. And just do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. Isn't that a radical? It's a radical thought in, in the current political environment to just just keep your promises. Your word is your bond. These oh. are crazy ideas, Ted. I a lot of Republicans don't think think that you're an extremist if you believe that you should do what you say you're going to do. It's crazy. <laughs> well, no, the only thing too is I, I think we ought to get rid of the political parties. That's what's destroying this country. Right. It's the cronyism and the the people that are backing each other for office. If you're not in with the in crowd, you ain't getting in. It doesn't matter how popular you are. Well, now we are getting a little more radical, Ted. I appreciate your call, man. I appreciate the thoughts. Thank you for giving us a ring. Uh, yeah, so let's get into it. Um, the the fake news thing, and I, I'm going to have to return to this uh, later. By the way, in terms of the show, I went longer on health care and taxes than I intended to. we got to talk about Nunez and his press conference slash White House uh, meeting that the press is talking about that we don't know if it happened or not, but he on the White House grounds. You got the FBI looking at Breitbart. Um, you've got CBS running stories on fake news. You got the Russia protests, sessions in sanctuary cities. Did United tell someone who was 10 years old she wasn't allowed on a flight because of leggings? We'll get to that at the end of the show because that's like not a real story. But people pretend these things are big stories. Uh, but a lot of ground to cover on the show today. So uh, do do stay with me as much as you can throughout the show. And of course, if you miss any part of it. Uh, you can go on 
the iHeart app and play it back, or uh, even better to subscribe if you want to subscribe is uh, iTunes. Click uh, type in Buck Sexton with America Now. Okay, on to uh, fake news and all that. So, uh, look, Sean Hannity doesn't need my help defending himself. He, he doesn't need me doing anything for him at all. And Sean, I know Sean, he's a, a really nice guy. Uh, I'm just, I want to comment on this because I am just flabbergasted by what a, what a, what a Ted Koppel is such a whiny, a whiny little liberal punk. I don't know how else to say it. You know, I, my first ever uh, internship, I, I would call it a job, but I mean, you know, if you're not paid, it's an internship. I interned at CBS Evening News and these guys, the Koppels, the Dan Rathers, oh, and we'll get back to Dan Rather later. Uh, they like to. They like America to harken back to a time when when news anchors all sounded like this and had a side part of gray hair and a a voice like a a genteel uh, midwestern grandpa who would just make America feel better. Uh, and that was your main qualification for being a wildly overpaid TV news journalist. Did you look the part? Did you sound the part? And yet Koppel brought Hannity on to CBS this morning and uh, said, well, this is how part of the now Sean has pointed out that this is a much smaller segment of a much longer interview, which is why I mean, you, you just liberal outlets do this all the time. Um, they, they've I've even little old me who, you know, who, who am I? Uh, I've had liberal outlets just cut an interview entirely because their host got so smacked around in it by yours truly. Oh, can we? Yeah, that's right. Slap it. The buck slap. Yeah. Buck slap. Um, but that was a thing that happened. Uh, but you got Koppel sitting down with, with Sean here, and this is what they air as the one part of the interview. Uh, play clip one. We have to give some credit to the American people that they're somewhat intelligent and that they know the difference between an opinion show and a news show. Yeah. You're, not, you're cynical. Look at that. Yeah. I am yeah. cynical because, uh, you know. You think we're bad for America? You think yeah. I'm bad for America? Yeah. You do. In the in the long haul, I think you really? and all these opinion That's shows. That's sad, Ted. No, you know why? That's sad. Because you're very good at what you do, and because you have you have attracted a significantly you more influential. Well, let me finish the sentence. Let me finish the sentence before you do that. With all due respect. You, yes. Let me you finish have, the you sentence attracted. before you do that. People who are determined that ideology is more important than facts. Ideology, you see, I, Ted Koppel doesn't have ideology. He just has journalism and facts. Uh, what a, I, I just, uh, what, what a great encapsulating moment of the wildly overinflated uh, esteem with which the old elite media holds itself. And, you know, Sean is trying to have a civil interaction with this guy. He says to him, you're bad. You're bad for America. OK, he doesn't even say that you're bad for journalism. He says you're bad for America and then tries this backhanded. But what's because you're so good at what you're, 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 you're so good at what you do. And well, that's after he says you're you're bad for America. Um, this is. This is why, by the way, and we'll talk more about fake news later. I've got a whole bunch of fake news stuff to talk about later in the show, including the alleged FBI investigation into Breitbart. And now we have and, and bots and CBS explaining bots, which are just programs on the Internet that act as people and don't do a very good job of it. Usually, uh, anyway, we, there's so much to talk about there as though propaganda and opinion and 
uh, fake news, uh, as though any of that is new or didn't exist before, but uh, I digress on it. We'll see, we will hit more of that later on the show, but just back to this Koppel-Hannity exchange. This is, for me, the original sin of modern American journalism. The pretense that these people, and by these people I mean Ted Koppel, Dan Rather, uh, I'll, I'll go down the list. Um, I mean, I'm forgetting who some of the other ones are, but, you know, the, the, the big nightly news anchors and the networks that they represent and some of the other longstanding, even cable news talking heads uh, on the liberal networks, that they, don't, that they don't represent opinions and that they don't favor a political party uh, and that they're not part of a massive media echo chamber. At this point, it's, they're either delusional or they're just brazen liars. So someone like Ted Koppel, when, when he thinks that he doesn't represent opinion and when he thinks that only the right and people like Sean and others represent, quote, opinion, uh, they are either just refu- they refuse to give up on this lie because they like to think of themselves as, you know, the guardians, as the uh, defenders of journalism in America, you know, the, the, the true you know, the, the, the Brahmins, the, the elite class of journalists in this country. Uh, or, I mean, I, I don't know. What, are, what really are the options that they have here? They, uh, they want to cling to that fiction uh, because it's just so deeply seated in their minds. Or they are just wildly dishonest and figure that it's better for business. It's better for their brand. And they want to live out this pretense that they are not representative of one political party. Um, they want to act like somehow only only on the right. And again, when we get into the fake news stuff, buried at the end of the CBS report they did over the weekend on fake news was that it's a problem on the left too, meaning that there are people running fake left-wing stories all over the place. And what's fascinating about the way CBS looks at all this, or rather what CBS talks about and versus the way it's usually written about in media, is that on the left, you have all these fancy college-educated latte drinkers that are fooled by leftist fake news, and they want to point the fingers at everybody else. All right, we've got a ton of show. Stay with me, team. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. We are joined by Andy McCarthy. He's a former U- uh, assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's a best-selling author and a contributing editor at National Review. Andy, great to have you. Buck, always great to be with you. Uh, so I, I want to get into all of the details and and have you walk us through your latest piece on National Review Online. But if I could first just ask you, about the the preponderance of the media coverage on all things Nunez, intelligence, Russia, Trump, all of it, is where Nunez may have had a meeting to get his information that he had the press conference on last week. I, I, I really ask this in honesty. I, I understand that they... I guess the suggestion is that it, it's he's taking this from his, you know, his masters at the, at the White House, right, that Nunez is being ordered around by Trump or something. But w- w- where he held the meeting, why does that actually matter when one thinks about what we're talking about? Well, I think it matters, Buck, because there's a misimpression, I think, among people when they hear White House that he must have had the meeting at the White House, whereas, as I understand it, 
what they're talking about, and, and we should be clear, the context of this is Nunez's complaint that the FBI is not being forthcoming with information. And Nunez, we know from uh, past dealings, is somebody who has pretty good hooks in the intelligence community, right? So when they – he wants to get the information that the FBI is withholding from him, and evidently he has a source in the intelligence community that was willing to give him at least some of what he was interested in. Now, when they say White House, what they mean is White House grounds. That doesn't mean he was like in the right. Oval he's not office. in the Oval Office, right? right. <laughs> yeah. And what I suspect, and I am relying in part on the excellent reporting that uh, Eli Lake has done on this in, at Bloomberg. But um, what I suspect is that, uh, as you know, the the National Security Council has offices in the old Executive Office Building, which is technically on the White House grounds, even though it's not the White House proper, and that's where. A lot of uh, if you want to get, as you know, as you want to get access to classified information, unless you're Hillary Clinton, you have to go where the classified information is, uh, you know, unless they set up like a, a, a skiff, a, a, uh, you know, one of these places that the government has uh, secured in order to be able to review it on site. You have to go where the documents are. And as I understand it, he went to a place where his source who was in the intelligence community had access to a terminal on which you can read electronically uh, classified documents, and that's what he did. But it seems to me that the focus on that uh, is completely overshadowing the possible veracity of Nunez's claims last week. The, I mean, unless people really think that that the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence is just a huge, a huge liar, uh, he said some stuff that should get everybody asking a, a whole lot of questions. And you walk through. Uh, much of that in your piece. FISAgate, the question is not whether Trump associates were monitored. Uh, take us through this, Andy, because this is very important. I think there's an assumption even among uh, pro-Trump people, Trump defenders, that what hap- that what may have happened here, we don't know yet, what may have happened here was illegal, criminal, someone's going to prison. It's not that simple. No, it's not that simple, and it's really not criminal. And I, I think, Buck, the, the best way to try to explain this to people is that, you know, people hear federal law and they instantly assume criminal law. And the fact is most law and most regulations and most guidelines, even though they are, you know, federal standards, they're not criminal laws. So that if you violate them, uh, even if you intentionally violate them, uh, and we're far from proving that, as you say, uh, it's not the kind of thing that anyone goes to jail And what we're talking about here are what's known as minimization instructions, Um, and that's something that attends all wiretapping. And just to give people uh, an example, which occurs much more commonly and actually under much more uh, judicial oversight, uh, when you get a criminal wiretap, let's say you have a criminal investigation, forget intelligence for a second, Um, when the court gives you the order authorizing the wiretap, it comes with minimization instructions that all the agents have to read before they monitor it. And one of the things that it may say, for example, is that let's say you have a home where the drug dealer is the guy you're trying to wiretap, but he's got a 14-year-old daughter who talks to all her girlfriends on the phone. Um, If someone's using the phone for non-criminal purposes and they establish what's known as a pattern of innocence, 
you know, you find out the 14-year-old girl is talking to other 14-year-old girl about, you know, the stuff that 14-year-old girls talk about. Yeah, Ariana Grande or the Spice Girls or whatever's cool now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That The agents at that point are supposed to turn off the recording device, right? That's minimization. You're not, you're not supposed to be recording people who are shown to be innocent people. The thing is to target the, the bad guy. Well, if the agents fail to minimize, that doesn't mean the agents go to jail. It doesn't mean they get disciplined. If the, if the uh, offense is bad enough, like you know, they completely just don't pay any attention to the minimization instructions, they might get suspended by the agency. A court might be persuaded to suppress the wiretap because it wasn't you know, handled properly. So if you've got good evidence off the wiretap, you might not be able to introduce it in court. But nobody goes to jail over that. You just you've you know, you've violated the guidelines. Now, in intelligence, you the agents have much more leeway to bend the guidelines because and this is important for people to understand. Intelligence is an executive branch uh, power, the collection of foreign intelligence. It's not a judicial proceeding. It's not like a wiretap where you're trying to, to get evidence that you hope to use in court. Um, it's really something that until 1978, courts had absolutely no role in at all. It's, it's a unilateral executive branch show for the most part that is aimed at collecting evidence against foreign powers. And it's not just whatever perfidy they may be up to. We're entitled to find out what other countries are up to to the extent that you know our interests may be affected by them. And it may not just be vital national security interests. It may be just good things for our country to know. So the executive branch has a lot more leeway to do uh, – wiretapping and other kinds of electronic surveillance and intelligence collection in the foreign intelligence realm, there's really not a lot of court supervision over it. And there shouldn't be because courts are not institutionally competent to to do that kind of oversight. That's got to be left to intelligence professionals. And even though there are minimization instructions that say for the protection of uh, Americans, you're supposed to mask their identities before the agency that collects the intelligence distributes distributes it to other intelligence agencies, um, they are permitted to not mask if there's a plausible argument that you need to know the identity of the American in question in order to fully understand the and exploit the value of the intelligence. So that's a pretty broad license to not mask. And again, what people need to understand here is when we're talking about how they didn't mask, what we're saying is when the NSA collected information, it didn't conceal the identity of the Americans before the information got disseminated to other intelligence agencies, meaning it was never supposed to see the light of day. The, the crime here, if there is one, is that somebody gave public disclosure to the media of classified information, which would be a felony whether or not the identities were masked. But the masking problem is a matter of like, did the NSA let the CIA see something that, you know, they argued arguably should not have. And that frankly, if the CIA uh, had an IQ of over 11, they'd be able to figure out who the, the masked identity was anyway. Right. Um, so I, I just think they're making a bigger deal of this than it is. It's not a crime. 
but it could be a big abuse of power. Right. It could be politically thermonuclear is how I've said it in the past. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, and especially if it's done for political reasons. So if there's a good faith investigation of Russian activity, forget about meddling in the election. Whatever the Russians are up to, the Russians are a hostile regime to the United States. And we should always want to know what they're up to, whether they tried to meddle in our election and the extent of that or not. So I, I certainly don't have any problem. I, I, w- I would have more of a problem if they weren't monitoring what the Russians were doing. And obviously, if there were American officials that were in connection with people who were in Putin's circle, um, we would want to know – we would want the intelligence community to know that and to know who those officials are and what those dealings were about. Um, where this could become explosive is if you used your national, uh, if you use your national security foreign intelligence collection authority as a pretext to do spying on the political opposition for political purposes, not for real national security purposes, then that would be an enormous abuse of power, and it would be beside the point that it was not. A prosecutable felony in court because it would be such a huge breach of trust and breach of the public trust that public office holders have that it would be worthy of removing people from power regardless of whether they could be prosecuted for it. Now, going down that pathway, Andy, of, of the political wrong versus the legal wrong, as you stated in your piece, what is the worst case in your mind? And, and just give us the, you know, connect the dots here, uh, as you used to as a, as a former federal prosecutor, what is the worst case political wrong that you can see realistically uh, for the Obama administration and associated officials and maybe even intelligence community officials based on what we know so far? I, I think it's twofold, um, just looking at it uh, uh, from soup to nuts and when it occurred. First is the prospect that they use their national they use their intelligence collection authority for the purpose of spying on the political opposition and if it could be shown for example nunez has claimed that some of this monitoring or collection that they did had nothing to do with russia and appears to have been you know discussions by transition officials about members of the Trump family and what the transition was up to and that sort of thing. If, if they used foreign intelligence collection authority to do that, that would be a big political uh, problem. And I mean political not in the sense of partisan bickering. I mean an abuse of political power worthy uh, of some real comeuppance. The other thing is, and I, I think this is interesting, Buck, in the sense of um, you know comparing – what the complaint has been about this whole, you know, and this whole Russian Russia hacked the election meme that we've heard for almost five months now. Um, the the big thing is not that the Russians, uh, if they are the ones behind this, put out information that was false. This was not that at all. The problem people have with it, especially if you're a Democrat, is that they put their thumb on the scale, right? They put on they put out information that was true about the Democrats, but they didn't put it out about the Republicans, where whether they had it or not is a separate matter. But the thing is that they tried to influence the election by being one-sided in their perfidy. Um, 
the reason I think that's interesting is because it, it seems to me that the possibility here is that the Obama administration put its thumb on the scale with respect to the election by using its control of the executive branch police and intelligence powers. And what I mean by that is that at the very same time this alleged spying on the Trump campaign was going on, the administration was bending over backwards not to prosecute a very serious criminal case against Hillary Clinton. So I think this can't be looked at in a vacuum. It's got to be looked at in terms of did the administration play it safe? Did they hold the Clinton campaign to the same sorts of standards that they were holding the Trump campaign to? Or did they use a ridiculously low burden of, of uh, persuasion to justify doing a investigation of the Trump campaign and then use a ridiculously high burden of persuasion to rationalize not prosecuting Hillary Clinton. And I think if they did those two things at the same time, uh, the Obama administration would be guilty of much more profound and concretely serious meddling in the election. Yeah, this that would be very serious political political misconduct at a minimum. But you're saying again this this could fall within the realm of uh discretion of uh, in a sense prosecutorial and invest and investigative discretion. Uh but that doesn't make it okay in the eyes of the American people and so I think it's important that we find out exactly uh, what happened here. Uh, Andy McCarthy's a former US attorney uh, assistant US attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author and uh, read his latest at nationalreview.com, everybody. He really knows his stuff. Andy, we got to get you to watch Billions so you can come on one day and just tell us what's real, what's not from that show. And uh, thank you thank you very much for joining us, my friend. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Bob. Great to talk to you. You too. See this breaking news from CNN. House Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunez uh, defended himself from a wave of criticism following the revelation. He visited White House grounds last week. To access information, he said, showed President Donald Trump and his associates may have had their communications collected by U.S. intelligence during surveillance. Nunez said on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer that he had to view the classified documents in an executive branch location because the intelligence community had not yet provided them to Congress. Uh, So what? I I would like someone to give me the so what here. Um. He went out of order. Are we now supposed to assume that the executive branch, which is controlled by the White House or, you know, takes ultimately it's serves the the American people in the Constitution, but it is under the direction and management of the White House and the president. Do we think that they're fabricating these documents? Is, is that the allegation now? I got to say, these just we need to see what Nunez is talking about here. The president needs to declassify this stuff. Uh, we, we need to see the information ourselves. They can redact it as they have to, but we should see what is going on here. It, the, the, the time for all the supposition and the insinuation and the games, the gross, slimy, underhanded games that the Democrats and some Republicans, but the Democrats are playing with all this stuff. It's just too much. I mean, you have my one of my former CNN colleagues here, uh, um, uh, someone who I, I more than once, uh, to my understanding, ne- never served in similar capacities to me abroad, uh, and more than once would make claims about how 
my position defending the Trump administration on a foreign policy issue uh, was somehow putting troops in danger. So I have, this is one of the worst national security analysts on TV, in my opinion. Not to be mean, just true. Uh, and here's, we want to talk about insinuation. Play clip 12. The name that's not mentioned is a name I mention often on the show, Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor. Um, it is starting to look like, from, from my sources and then also from open reporting, that Mike Flynn is the one who may have a deal with the FBI, and that's why we have not heard from him uh, for some time. She's backed off that when they've said, what, what do you mean your sources? This is what she says on national TV on CNN. The same person who more than once went into the script of like, and I really think that your position on this is endangering our troops. I was like, my position on like NATO funding or something is endangering our troops. It's just this, it's just complete nonsense. But she's a complete Democrat partisan. And I, I have no idea what her actual expertise is because of her talking about national security and never heard any expertise. Uh, here she's saying that Mike Flynn is has a deal with the she's on national TV. It's not like this is just she's having a chat with a friend has a deal with the FBI based on open reporting and my sources. Uh, OK, if your sources are just people that also just think this because that's not a real source and open reporting. I mean. Yeah, you can come up with anything on open reporting, right? You can say, well, because of the open reporting, uh, I think that, in fact, Donald Trump is not the president. This is a shadow presidency that's run by... How can you disprove that from the open reporting? I mean, from open source, you can come to any conclusion you want, I suppose. That's not That's not. The, that's not enough for this kind of an allocation. Saying that Flynn has a deal with the FBI? This is on CNN, everybody. I thought that they, you know, hate the fake news over there. I thought that they would never go and go down this pathway. Look, you, you know, you had Judge Napolitano got taken off air at Fox for saying something about GCHQ that he couldn't uh, verify or, or that was unsubstantiated. Uh, you can go on CNN, though, apparently, and say that the former national security advisor and a general who served his country for decades, uh, quote, may have a deal with the FBI. What's that based on? Oh, nothing. But, you know, I just thought that maybe that was true. Oh, okay. Let's bring you on CNN. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Joined by Caitlin Collins, everybody. She's the Daily Caller's White House reporter. I hear her tossing those questions out at Sean Spicer on a regular basis. She's going to give us the lowdown and the what's what. Caitlin, great to have you. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Thank you so much for uh, for joining. So, uh, first off, press conference today. What are the big takeaways? What do we need to know? Uh, today was a pretty loaded press briefing with Sean Spicer. There was a lot to talk about with Devin Nunes and health care and everything that happened on Friday. And it was a lot. It was, you know, a lot of Sean Spicer saying that he wasn't sure what Devin Nunes was doing at the White House the night before he made those intelligence revelations last week. And because we learned today that Nunes had actually been there because, you know, for the past week, no one has known where he was that Tuesday night before he came to the White House. So that was interesting. But Sean Spicer basically told us everything that he knew is what's out in the public and that Nunes had confirmed he was on White House grounds. But that was about all he had. 
Okay. Well, doesn't really get us uh, much further than what we've already been hearing in terms of uh, Nunez coming out and saying that, okay, he's on the White House grounds. I still think that's much less interesting than than most of the media's pretending it is. But uh, let's get into some of the other. First of all, what is your sense from being around, from being in the White House during these uh, briefings and also, of course, surrounded by your your fellow journalists, for better and for worse, uh, what's your takeaway in terms of the aftermath of the failed Obamacare repeal and replace vote from last week? How, how big a deal is this? Well, I mean, it is a pretty big deal. This was one of Donald Trump's main campaign promises. He promised people that he was going to repeal Obamacare. And even more than that, you know, that was like the last 15 months. But Republicans have been running on this for seven years now. And that's why they have a majority in Congress right now, because people believe that they're really going to repeal Obamacare. So if you have the chance to do it and you don't do it, it does not look good to voters back home. But we are hearing that they're not taking health care off the table entirely. I've heard from Paul Ryan's people that they're going to still work on presenting a new bill eventually, hopefully. And they're remaining hopeful about health care. So what does that mean, by the way? I've seen that Paul Ryan and the Washington Post was reporting on this earlier today that they're going to do something about health care this year. Okay, what's that? What's that? Do you have any sense of what that's supposed to look like and when that's supposed to happen? Exactly. The Post is reporting is that this on a retreat this Thursday and this Friday that Paul Ryan will present a new health care bill. Now, that hasn't been confirmed to me, but what I have been told is they still have a promise to keep, so Paul Ryan wants members to continue discussing health care until they can find a path ahead. You can read into that what you think, but basically it means they need more members who are going to vote yes for a Republican health care bill. And right now, they don't have those numbers. And what about Trump signing four bills rolling back Obama-era regulations? Are those pretty big? Uh, are those pretty big regulations to get peeled back, or is that not as uh, is that just a, yet another thing to a, a little swamp drainage, but nothing to write home about? Well, it depends on how you look at it, but. Donald Trump said he was going to get rid of every every regulation that killed jobs, and he thinks that these four bills that he signed today, rolling back legislation from the Obama era, did just that. You know, there's one that blacklisted companies from receiving federal contracts if they had violated any kind of labor rules any time in the past, you know, going back however many years. So Donald Trump thought that was unfair, so he signed a bill to get rid of it. So it's just a little bit of what he said. He said today in the uh, Roosevelt Room at the White House that there will be more of this to come, um, and we'll just have to see if it follows through on that. And the uh, the initial hostility that it seemed to that seemed to exist in the in the West Wing between Spicer and the press corps. I just want to ask you for some atmospherics here, Caitlin. Are, are is is that still is that still very palpable when you're in the room there and and when you're uh, surrounded by people that are peppering the administration with these questions? Do you feel like there's a there's some normalcy that is beginning to creep into all of this. Uh, it's routine, or are they still really hoping to trip up Spicer and create chaos? I mean, maybe if you get used to the chaos, it seems more routine. But it's definitely you know been this narrative that there's more conservative outlets getting called on, so the administration must be getting a lot of softball and easy questions. But I'm in that room every day, and it's safe to say that Sean Spicer doesn't have very many friends sitting in that audience asking him questions. Uh, and the press believes all the Russia collusion stuff. This is another, I, I just am I'm, I'm curious here. I always wonder what they what they really think they're going to find out at the end of all this. We keep hearing, oh, there needs to be investigation. And I, I think, did Cheney say something about how this was, uh, Russia was an act of war and they're pointing to that. 
Uh, I keep hearing about how important all of this is. What are we going to find out at the end based on what you hear from other journalists or or what the sentiment uh, is in that room when you have the press corps getting access to White House officials? Do they really believe that they're going to prove Russia collusion at the end of this and that somebody from the White House, maybe even Trump himself, is going to be caught up in that? I mean, they must. Well, that's a good question. It depends on who you ask, though. Some people will tell you that, yes, Donald Trump was in Vladimir Putin's pocket the whole time. And some people will tell you, no, that him reaching out to foreign leaders is just standard procedure. And some people like that he was trying to have a relationship with the Russian leader because they think that would be good for us in the end. But, I mean, there's new stuff coming out every day. Today we found out that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has volunteered to speak to the Senate intelligence community about uh, tie, they're, you know, they're investigating ties, potential ties to Russia because during the campaign and during the transition, Jared Kushner was the one who arranged meetings with the Russian ambassador and whatnot because that's what they said was his job. It was his job to stay in touch with foreign counterparts and arrange meetings between them. So they say there's nothing there, but it's definitely not the rumors around Washington. People definitely think there's a little more there than we're being let on. Well, we're going to get Jared Kushner testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, Committee. They're going to ask about his company or, you know, his, uh, yeah, the, the company that he worked for before he was really, he owned or it was a family company, and any connections with Russia or Russian banks. And even if it's not nefarious, at this point, any connectivity to Russia whatsoever for someone tied into the Trump administration is reported on as though, I mean, there's a, like a breathlessness with which they report on this stuff, and it's presented as, as though it's evidence of something nefarious, a- any contact at all. So I, I don't see how there can be a win from this. In fact, even if nothing comes of the of the Kushner testimony, they'll report on some aspect of it as though it's, oh, well, look, see, there's even more Russia ties than we initially thought. I, so I just don't see it as a political win, but I guess he has no choice. Yeah. That's definitely an option, but and there's all this pushback against the Russian ambassador. You know, right after all the Michael Flynn news came out, everyone said he was such a bad guy. And maybe he is. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But it is worth noting that this guy, Sergei Kislyak, appeared in the White House visitor logs over dozens of times when Barack Obama was in the White House. And that wasn't always just for, you know, a big event with, like, 25 senators, like what happened with Jeff Sessions. Some of these meetings, you can tell – it tells you exactly how many people were in the meeting – and sometimes it's two or three or less than 10 people. So it's worth noting that this is a guy who was around a lot when Barack Obama was in office as well. He hasn't just popped up, you know, with the rise of Donald Trump. This is a guy who's been around. And what can you tell us about, speaking of Mr. Kushner, um, uh, whom I've actually met I've actually met a couple of times, uh, he has been tapped to lead the new White House Office on Government Innovation. Wh- what is this? Yeah, that's a mouthful. Uh, it's not really clear what this new office is designed to do. They unveiled it today, and, you know, it's got Gary Cohn and Reed Cordish and Dina Powell on, you know, the board on his team with him. They meet twice a week in Kushner's office, and their job is basically what they say is to innovate the government, fulfill key promises Trump made on the campaign trail, like reforming veterans' affairs, fighting the opioid epidemic, et cetera, but they may also privatize some government functions. So the, it was a little vague of exactly what they'll be doing. It'll be interesting to see, but it just shows you how much weight Jared Kushner has in the West Wing. You know, he's already doing so many other things, and now Donald Trump has tapped him to lead this new office. All right, Caitlin, we'll keep keep holding him accountable down there in the West Wing, all right? Keep doing your thing. Caitlin Collins, everybody, is the Daily Caller's White House 
reporter. Check out DailyCaller.com for her latest. Caitlin, give my best to Vince and the whole crew. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Uh, team, phone lines are open here, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Uh, if you have any thoughts on, oh, well, anything at all, please do uh, give a ring. Uh, also, just the, the notion of a of a government innova- uh, innovation office for a second. I wanted to touch on this. We need to figure out as a country, um, or maybe even just as a Republican Party, whether the real goal is to have government be better at all the stuff that it does, or to have government do less stuff. That's not the same thing. So, well, I don't know what this White House Office on Government Innovation is. It seems like they're going to try to harness particularly Silicon Valley-style digital era expertise in a few different realms. And Look, that can be great, and maybe it'll be on mission-critical uh, mission critical items that the White House and that the government should be engaged in, right? I mean, nobody... Nobody thinks that there should be, well, I should say nobody, but the discussion is not as to whether there should be no government function or activity. That's not the case at all. But if government is doing too much, I don't know if the way to, say, drain the swamp or the way to handle this is to be better at doing some of the things government shouldn't be doing in the first place. I mean, you could say that's an improvement and maybe we should just be trying to make things a little bit better. Uh, But I think that the argument should be much more along the lines of the government shouldn't be doing this at all. And then you start getting into, instead of adding new task forces and uh, building out various departments of the government to do less, and you have less government activity and less mandates, that's really the heart of a lot of what should be the conservative agenda now, I would think. I don't hear much about that. Remember when we were being told that there should be uh, there would be repeals of, or not repeals, sorry, there would be uh, elimination of certain departments and government activities. I just don't hear much talk like that or about that these days. Uh, Barry in Mississippi on the iHeart app. What's up, Barry? Hey, Buck. Uh, did you get to see the interview yesterday with Jim Jordan and uh, Fox News on D. Uh, Wallace? Did you see that? Uh, in fact, I think we have some audio of it i saw a clip of it and i think we have the audio where did it go yeah we Can I talk uh hold on one second let me, let me play it for everybody okay. um am i am i crazy dramos do we have that or not i thought we had it oh, okay i can't find it sorry you were saying well there was a section near the end of the interview with where uh wallace pressed jordan hard on the issue of pre-existing oh here here we go we, we do have it we're going to play it for you then you can talk about it play clip 16 go will be living with Obamacare for the foreseeable future. Isn't that on you and your fellow members of the Freedom Caucus? Uh, Chris, in, in the last segment, I think uh, every, you blame the Freedom Caucus or people blame the Freedom Caucus, the Heritage Foundation, the Club for Growth. You blame, I, I, that's the President blame, Trump. blame the, uh, the Speaker of the House and even uh, people are blaming the very guest you had on before, Ryan's Priebus. Instead of doing the blame game, let's get to work. Let's do the responsible thing. Let's get back to work and do what we told the voters we were going to do. Remember this bill? 17% of the country approved this bill. Maybe, maybe the, the fact that we opposed it, we did the country a favor because this bill didn't repeal Obamacare. Well, there you go, Barry. So you were saying. Yeah, well, yeah, but near the end, Wallace pressed him on pre-existing conditions. Wallace said, look, they gave you everything you wanted until it came to that, and then no deal. So 
my opinion is that there was only one thing that stopped the whole deal, and that was pre-existing. Trump promised it. Freedom Caucus doesn't want it, so we're stuck. They call it they call it guarantee issue, right? Trump campaigns on keeping pre-existing. The people voted for keeping pre-existing. So when Jordan says we're doing what the voters want, no, he's not. He's lying. The voters want pre-existing, and I know it costs money. You're right. It's going to cost in the end. But it was a promise. We have to find a way or should have found a way to live with that. And, and you know, Ryan's already got money in the bill for starting uh, high-risk pools in the states. But, you know, Trump promised it. He had to deliver. He could not let Freedom Caucus take that away. He would have been worse off because he, he would have Well, I have to say, Barry, Trump. that was one of many – that was one of many parts, many provisions – that republic that there were some republicans that they didn't want to get rid of but i think that was the one that was the most uh politically important to at least some but we got to leave it there barry i I, barry i gotta go into a break i'm sorry thank you for calling from mississippi team we'll be right back team we're not gonna go too deep into it today i just wanted to mention though as a uh, perhaps a teaser for tomorrow or later in the week depending on our guest schedule here. Like I said, it's so much show, so many things I want to talk about today. I don't even know if we're going to get to Gorsuch and the possible Supreme Court nominee filibuster that he, he may face. I don't know. We'll see if the Democrats have the uh, the spine to go through with that one. Um, but also on Sanctuary Cities, you had Jeff Sessions today who took the podium for a moment at the uh, press conference. Uh, the press conference the White House held was the, with Spicy doing his thing. And Sessions spoke to the issue of sanctuary cities. Play clip uh, seven. The president has rightly said disregard disregard for law must end. In his executive order, he stated that it is the policy of the executive branch to ensure that states and cities comply with all federal laws, including all immigration laws. Today, I'm urging states and local jurisdictions to comply with these federal laws, including 8 U.S.C. Section 1373. Moreover, the Department of Justice will require that jurisdictions seeking or applying for Department of Justice grants to certify compliance with 1373 as a condition of receiving those awards. It's a pretty incredible circumstance when you have the highest law enforcement officer in the country, the attorney general, having to uh, request, plead, cajole, uh, push law enforcement authorities that are local or state across the country to be willing to help the federal government as federal law states enforce immigration laws, Um, that they would actively subvert federal law and that they would then turn around and say, what are you going to do about it? And now the federal government's saying, okay, well, you want to play that game? You know, you don't want to play, you don't want to play chicken if you're afraid you're going to lose your car, right? I mean, you know, you better be ready for it. And these uh, various sanctuary cities that are acting like they can just get away with this for as long as they want, that it doesn't matter. Um, They can, lie, by the way, about the risks that oftentimes come from releasing illegals who are arrested. Keep in mind, they're arrested for non-immigration violations. These are people that have already been picked up by the police, and then when they find out their immigration status, that they're illegal aliens, they won't 
give them over to authorities, even when they say, hey, can you hold on to them? Uh, you know, local local police could do this with any number of issues if they wanted to. I mean, they, they could do they could say, oh, we're not going to hold on to this for we're not going to hold on to this drug trafficker. We're not going to hold on to. Uh, and and they could, I guess, challenge federal authorities to do something about it. But at least that would be too far for them on immigration, though. They feel like they can subvert. They can subvert the law. And you've you got you got the Mexican consulates across the country. I think there are dozens of them that are trying to tell illegals uh, who are in the country uh, how to evade and and deal with and get around immigration law enforcement. So uh, the the sanctuary city showdown that is coming between the administration and various Democrat strongholds is going to be, well, it's going to be fierce, my friends. That's what I think. Uh, we got to get into that and more later this week, but uh, we're going to come back and talk about some fake news. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are cold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Let's talk a bit about fake news, shall we? You have McClatchy reporting here that the FBI is as part of its Russia influence probe looking at Breitbart and Infowars. Um, now, what they think they will find from this, I, I, I do not know. Um, and this, of course, is the, the FBI is not, as I understand it, is not commenting specifically on, on this aspect of it. But is it really news to anybody that there are cyber hackers and propagandists and others out there on the web who push stories that are fake, that aren't true, that, that they push lies. And why is this something the FBI would be spending its time on? Um, this, I would like to know what, what they think the end result of this is. Are we going to shut off stories on the Internet that we don't like? I mean, you can start to see how the room for abuse here is considerable. What's the takeaway from looking into fake news and how it affected the election with respect to people writing things that are not true online or having bots, computer programs that go on social media and hype up certain stories? Uh, so what? I, I'm left looking at this and saying to myself, for one, this isn't new. And two, it's not a criminal matter. Propaganda is... Not a criminal matter. You can lie about stuff. Democrats, Republicans, politicians, people do it all the time. Unless you're under oath or it's part of a fraud, unless there's a specific uh, kind of lie that we're talking about, just lying in general is not a crime. And the FBI should be investigating crimes, not doing due diligence on the veracity of Internet memes. That seems to me to be quite strange. But then you also have 60 Minutes out there uh, doing this piece on uh, over the weekend that they had, uh, what, Mike Cernovich and some other people that they were interviewing to talk about this. And it was funny. I was like, wow, you know, the bots and the, the news stories and the fake news. And they talked about Pizzagate. And uh, this is one of the most storied legacy news shows on the, one of the most storied and legacy news outlets, uh, CBS 60 Minutes. They're, they're running these fake stories on fake news as though, one, this has some huge impact, and two, 
we need to be hearing about this again. This is only fascinating to people who still see. Let's get into the motivation here. Why is CBS running a story just this past weekend about how fake news works online? Uh, why is the FBI reportedly looking into not just uh, right-wing websites? And, and Infowars is, I don't even know what, Infowars is a whole other thing. I mean, Infowars is, is conspiracy stuff. Look, conspiracy can be fun in the sense that it can be interesting. You just shouldn't take it seriously. Oh, he's coming for me now. Oh, now now, I've, now I, have, I, have, I have poked a sleeping bear here. I know he's, uh, I doubt it. Um, but, Conspiracy stuff, it can be interesting. It's just not real, right? It's like watching a, a fictional movie. It can be engaging, but... Oh, you, you punk, talk, talk, that sm- talk that stuff to my face. Uh, he, he's not a fan of mine. For those of you who know who I'm talking about, I don't even know the guy. He just has done more than one segment where he's been like, like he's, you know, look, at that, look at that stupid smirk on that stupid face. I, mean, I agree, my smirk is ridiculous, uh, and so is my hair. But nonetheless, I don't, I don't think we have to be mean, Mr. Jones. Uh, but he's the InfoWars guy. And then you've got, of course, Breitbart with the Bannon connection. Uh, Breitbart is a, a target now for a whole bunch of reasons. They keep saying it's alt-right. Um, I know people who work at Breitbart. I have friends who work at Breitbart. And uh, first of all, some of the, a lot of them are Jewish. Uh, as, as they've said, it's, there's a number of their, of their editors are Jewish. So that it would be an alt-right neo-Nazi site would be particularly bizarre. Um, and... That they're pushing the story, though. You know, why do they go with all this stuff? Why are we hearing about Breitbart, Infowars, FBI investigation, Russia, fake news, all of that? It's because there are people sitting at home who are watching CBS who just want to see more and more information that, in their view, validates this prejudice that they have, this information prejudice that Donald Trump didn't really win the election that fake news was responsible for his win, that this is all a lie, and maybe this is just some big nightmare from which we will all wake up at some point. And so that's how you get pieces like this one. Play clip eight from 60 Minutes over the weekend. In this last election, the nation was assaulted by imposters masquerading as reporters. They poisoned the conversation with lies on the left and on the right. Many did it to influence the outcome, others just to make a buck. The president uses the term fake news to discredit responsible reporting that he doesn't like. But we're going to show you how con artists insert truly fake news into the national conversation with fraudulent software that scams your social media account. The stories are fake, but the consequences are real. Uh, Rarely are the consequences real. And fake news is nothing new. In fact, we have anyone who's ever been to a grocery store has probably seen stories about how a an alien half Satan baby was born last week in the Arizona desert because of, uh, you know, nuclear testing that happened in the 60s. And I mean, the National Enquirer. Do people believe that? In fact, my I mentioned my my nanny uh, last week on the air. Oh, oh, hello, buckle. Um, I, I mentioned her, and, and she, yeah, she, she, I think she did believe some of that stuff. Uh, I don't, before, you know, she didn't vote. She wasn't a U.S. citizen. She's a U.K. citizen. But point here being that fake news is nothing new in that sense, that it's been around, and there are whole businesses built on this. And, of course, various conspiracy newsletters and all the rest of it that's out there. So well, I guess what they're trying to say is now that there's a digital, a digital hook to it, it is much more powerful than it was in the past. But I would argue that 
it's just magnified in the sense that everything else is magnified now. There's more inf- there are more information sources now than ever before online, and, and more people have instantaneous and continuous access to information than ever before. So, of course, in that context, yeah, the, the fake news, stuff, you're going to see more fake news because you're seeing more news in general. But if you can't tell the difference between a fake news bot and a, a real reporter or somebody who has uh, some stake, some stake in their reputation and authenticity in their reporting, well, I, whether it's a, a sock puppet fake Twitter account or Facebook account or it's, you know, the National Enquirer in the checkout counter, you're still going to get fooled. And you'll notice that they mentioned that it happens on the left as well as the right. How big of an issue is this? Why don't they do some polling and ask somebody, did you know, did you vote? Did you vote based on fake news? Did you make your decision for the presidency based on fake news? And, you know, that's actually part of the price of living in a free society is that people can do really stupid stuff. Right. This is reality for us. If we're going to live in a free society, it means that people can believe stupid fake stuff. They can, you know, they can sit around and believe that we are all under the control of some shadowy globalist international government, the Illuminati, the Bilderbergs are all working together. Buck Sexton, part of it. I wish I was part of it. I'd be so much like more connected and rich than I am. Uh, but you can believe that you're part of all that stuff. And that's or, you know, you can believe all that. And that's you're right. You do have a right in a free society to believe false stories. You have a right to be ill-informed. You have a right to be as dumb as you want to be. But the media, of course, likes to exaggerate this. I've yet to find of one example of somebody who's like, well, I would have voted for I would have voted for Hillary, except for that story that was running from the Russian bot site that, you know, so, by the way, a lot of they keep talking about clicks. I know something about this because I was originally hired in media to work at TheBlaze.com, and I worked in the back end of the site, and I, I knew how the metrics worked, and I was constantly checking on what was working, what didn't. It was a great introduction to the digital media world. A lot of people, are cl- they, they click on stuff just out of curiosity. This whole notion that, oh, well, because these Russian bot sites uh, were getting clicks throughout the election, uh, that must have changed the way this all worked out. You know, they point to one case, this lunatic who went into a pizzeria in the D.C. area as, oh, see what this can happen. Yeah, people can believe all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, there are always going to be idiots out there. So what? Are, why is this? Why is 60 Minutes doing news stories on this? Uh, they're really trying to tell us that, oh, right, because it plays into the narrative. The narrative is that this all happened uh, because of fake news. Did Trump's victory is a result of fake news, even though. I, I can't think of a single person. I, they've never been able to produce a human being who says, well, if it, if it wasn't for that fake news story, I would have voted for the opposing party. But, you know, that fake news story really hasn't happened yet. And saying that there are all these retweets or clicks or everybody, by the way, that whole, the whole, the whole Internet is rigged in terms of how that stuff works, by the way. People are, are rigging it all, whether it's gaming, SEO, search engine optimization, or paying for placement on Facebook, or paying for placement on name your search engine, or, you know, the, the, the whole thing is, it's a business and it's rigged. Of course it is. People need to stop, they need, we all need to be disabused of this notion that it's some public utility, that the internet is, you know, this, this information highway where there aren't some people in the fast lane, some in the slow lane, and some getting pulled over unfairly by the cops. That's the reality of the Internet. Meanwhile, you got this CBS report out there saying that this is happening and, oh, we need to take this so seriously because of the clicks. How many of the people that clicked on this 
figured that it was just, you know, something interesting to look at for a second, you know, some story about whatever it is they're talking about. Uh, I, I got to tell you, I, I live like I like to think that I'm a character in the media matrix or something. I, I'm constantly reading and online and on Facebook and all the time. It's my job day in and day out. Uh, never once have I come across a story from a news site and been like, oh, I don't know if this is real or not. Or, you know, this no, uh, never once has that happened. Uh, I've never seen something. I was like, well, I can't tell if this is real or fake. And you know what? Uh, it's it really shows you the attitude of many of these journalist elite types that they think that the basically they're what they're saying is the American people are too stupid to know the difference between you know a Russian bot pushed site and you know their local newspaper or or a news organization that has some if not credibility at least accountability right that will be held accountable for the stories that it publishes at some level speaking of accountability we're going to do some of that on the other side of this in just a minute. But uh, we're going to hit a quick break, team, and we'll be right back. So we have a little segment here that we're going to be uh, redoing, I think, uh, over time, or it's going to be a re- repeated segment. And uh, we like to call it uh, Great Moments in Fake News. This is Great Moments in Fake News. So we got CBS talking about Russian bots and social media scamming and all the other stuff to get narratives out there that, of course, the underlying message is that's why Trump won the election, even though that's not why he won the election. And fake news is a much overhyped and exaggerated information uh, warfare operation uh, or propaganda operation, depending on how you want to talk about it. But if we're going to talk about fake news, why don't we just like go back to some of the oldies, but the but the greats, you know, some of the some of the most uh, incredible, well, some of the greatest moments in fake news. Uh, CBS, 60 Minutes, that's interesting because, remember this one, Play Clip 9. Good evening. There are new questions tonight about President Bush's service in the Texas Air National Guard in the late 1960s and early 70s and about his insistence that he met his military service obligations. CBS News has exclusive information, including documents, that now sheds new light on the president's service record. 60 Minutes has obtained government documents that indicate Mr. Bush may have received preferential treatment in the Guard after not fulfilling his commitments. Ah, but that's not true. But wait, he doubled down on that one. Clip 10. But you have no regrets? No. You know, George, my attitude has gotten in recent years that sometimes things in journalism go badly for the correspondent. But it's important not to get baffled, not to be afraid, and to never quit that I have a passion for covering news. I love covering news. And particularly when you do investigative stories, not everything is going to go well. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I just want to share that with you. That's a great moment in fake news. This has been Great Moments in Fake News. And remember, anything that hurts Trump must be true. Oh, there you go. Trust us. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so, by the way, the, the, you'll notice that the way that when they want to run with a fake news story, and I think using fraudulent documents during a presidential election to hopefully discredit one candidate in favor of another one winning is about as fake as fake is going to get. Real. Oh, they say, oh, but Buck, it's not intentional. I, I know the games that they play. Oh, Buck, there's a fake news is when it's uh, when they are intentionally from the start creating a false narrative. Well, when does recklessness become fake news? And when does political bias that overrides any sense of journalistic uh, propriety, integrity, 
and accountability, when does that become its own form of fake news? I, I just wonder where we where we could take that. You'll notice also, and this was true before we had uh, that CNN analyst on. I don't even want to say the name again, but the CNN analyst on to play the clip where she's saying that, what's the exact word here? It's starting to look like from my sources that Mike Flynn is the one who may have a deal with the FBI, may seem... These are the words that are used by those in the media who who want to tell a narrative without having to have facts to back it up, and they can always then try to slow walk it when they're done, right? Oh, or slow walk it backwards. Oh, I said seems, you know, may have. I mean, I'm just, you know, I didn't say you beat your wife. I'm just saying, you know, maybe maybe it's possible you beat your wife, question mark. Uh, that's what they do. Weasel words. They love weasel words when it comes to pushing fake news narratives. So I, I just find it fascinating. And I want the fact that the FBI is, is reportedly investigating fake news sites. Why? What, what's the criminal? So there's a lot of crap out there. There's a lot of crap. You know, click on Salon.com or The Nation on any given day. You'll see a lot of crap there, too. What's the big surprise? I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the FBI is not investigating that stuff. I hope they're not wasting their resources on it, but it's certainly possible. Felix in Pennsylvania, WEAB. What's up, Felix? Hey, Buck. Hey, do I get the distinction of being the first caller that you dumped? Did I dump you? Out? I don't think we dumped you. Yeah, a while back. Yeah, well, a couple weeks back. I was making a joke. Oh, yeah, probably like that. Yeah. All right. So keep it clean uh, this time, Felix. Or you, or we, we don't want to have to uh, be the first. You don't want to be the first caller to get banned. So what have you got on your mind? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't want to be banned from the hut. Hey, you know what? I'm getting really tired of all this. You know, what was the fake news that caused Hillary to lose? I mean, the collusion between the Obama administration, the Clintons, with the Russians and the Iranians, with all these deals that they made, and not to mention that Bill Clinton enabled little Kim and his family to get nukes. I mean, are you I mean, talking you know, about how they I mean, the the stories about specifically on Russia, Clinton collusion. I mean, you had the Russians and Russian banks and Russian oligarchs and those associated with all of the above funneling so much money to Clinton and to both Clintons and their foundation. And that's not considered a problem. You know, uh, Jared Cohen. I mean, sorry, uh, Jared. Um, uh, what's his Kushner. name? Jared Cohen's a former, uh, no, no. Uh, what's his oh. Kushner. Thank you. Um, uh, Jared Kushner being involved with a, um, international real estate, uh, conglomerate, uh, you know, th- th- that, anything that touches on Russia there is considered really bad, but the, the Clintons and all their Russia stuff going on, that's, that's no problem. And also, uh, Senator Obama, before he was, uh, I believe, before he was elected, saying, I'll tell Vlad not to worry about it. I'll, I'll be able to do more after the election. This is just, this is all insanity. I wonder when the Trump administration is really going to strike back and put an investigation to all these other things, you know, that the Clintons and the, the collusion of obstruction of justice in the whole uh, Hillary Clinton issue with her illegal server. Yeah, when when do we get Loretta Lynch under oath testifying about her conversation with Bill Clinton, by the way? I'd like to know when that happens. For all these all these yeah, custodians and guardians of, of, you know, the Constitution and all these people in Congress saying we need to have these investigations of Russia ties. But Felix, thanks for calling it from WEAB. Appreciate it. Uh, this is, it's also one-sided. And I know, I try to focus on other things, too, and and get into the the policy debates here more than just that. Well, the media is biased, the media is hypocritical, and the media lies. 
but it's hard to uh, even go a day without just commenting on it somewhat because that's that's how they're trying to bring down the administration. It's it's not like they're convincing everybody that there are all these amazing things that Democrats in Congress want to do if only Republicans would go along with them. Their plan here, the the plan to stand athwart the Trump agenda is not just to ruin people's reputations, not just to obstruct the actions of the Trump White House and the and the Republican-controlled Congress. They want to send people to prison. I mean, you can tell there are journalists who are rooting. They are rooting for senior administration figures. No, scratch that. They are rooting for the president himself to go to prison. And they're journalists. And they're supposed to be objective. So that's obvious at this point, which is why I think it's hard to not get into the narrative somewhat. All right. Going to talk about Iraq, right? We are back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Let's turn our sights to the Battle of Mosul. We have the Iraqi Prime Minister uh, Abadi saying that ISIS's defeat is mere weeks away. 18. I think at the moment we are at a very important juncture where Daesh is on the retreat. We in Iraq has, has been killing Daesh, removing them from our land, and uh, we are killing their aim so that re- recruits are at minimal at the moment. So what they're trying to do now, they're trying to attract more recruits by doing these acts, criminal acts. We should be focused, we should be concentrated to remove this ugly, dangerous terrorist organization. In Iraq, in Syria, how close is ISIS to defeat? Well, in Iraq is, is there. I think the defeat is, is sure, is definite. We'll finish the job in, in a very short time. It is within reach. By when? Within the next few weeks. In the next few weeks, he says. We're joined now by Michael Pregen. He's an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, senior Middle East analyst and former adjunct lecturer at the College of International Security Affairs. Uh, Michael, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, you know Iraq very well, my friend. What is going on in the battle for Mosul? And what do you think about what a body is saying here a few weeks until ISIS in Iraq is not completely gone, but on the ropes? Yeah, I mean, he said something in that interview that's key. He says uh, this would be a defeat for ISIS militarily, but you can't you can't liberate the using the population and replace flag. I still be able to have cells that will be able to do things uh, more in sync with the Al-Qaeda model. Uh, we still see ISIS being able to conduct attacks in Ramadi, Fallujah, Tikrit. They've just regained territory uh, in Hawija. And Western Mosul is a hell of a lot more difficult than Eastern Mosul was. It, there's upwards of 500,000 Sunnis still in Western Mosul with about 3,000 ISIS fighters. Uh, and if you want to talk about the uh, the U.S. bombing of that, uh, or the U.S. bombing that's in dispute right now, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, I was about to ask you. We've got civilian casualties from a, a, a U.S. airstrike. Um, the, people are talking about one incident in particular where I believe over 100 civilians may have been killed. What can you tell us about what what was what really happened here? Well, there's a there's a back and forth blame game going on. Initially, the initial reports were the U.S. dropped ordinance on an Iraqi-generated intelligence packet. Um, that seems to be be the case. The Iraqis on the ground generated a target, 
that target was a explosive laden vehicle and the U.S. jet supposedly hit that, it blew up and, and killed upwards of 200. The Iraqi ministry says it's 61. But what's important here is is that the U.S. was blaming the Iraqi government for the Iraqi-generated target packet, and the Iraqi government was saying that this was a U.S.-only operation. This happened March 17th. Now, two weeks later, we have this was a moving target and a truck laden with explosives that blew up, and that's what caused the collateral damage, killing those civilians. Well, if that's the case, that wouldn't have, ca- that wouldn't have generated that back and forth going between the Iraqi government and the U.S. military. And does this create uh, additional friction for the stabilization operations that are going to come once Mosul is cleared by the Iraqi government? And uh, our civilian casualties have been a stumbling block for uh, ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, uh, NATO and allies in Afghanistan in the past. Uh, is this, are, are there concerns that that will be now an issue, a major issue uh, for, the, for our continued assistance to the Iraqis in Iraq? Well, what I think is going to happen now is we're going to vet targets a lot better. Um, I think the days of using uh, jets to drop ordnance in western Mosul, where you have upwards of 500,000 civilians present, are over. I think what we're going to see now are the use of AH-64s, like we saw footage today, of Apaches actually being used in Mosul. They can actually use direct fire to pinpoint a moving target. They can react in real time, whereas... uh, an airstrike by the time the the jets get on station, that target may have already moved off. I think that's why you see the additional 200 Americans going uh, to help out in the Mosul fight. I wouldn't be surprised if they're forward observers and they're part of an artillery battalion because what's needed now are U.S. eyes on the ground to avoid civilian casualties because civilian casualties benefit ISIS. Right. I mean, you mentioned this. I just want to give everybody the, uh, the, the background here. Uh, Fox News reporting the U.S. is sending around 200 more troops to Mosul. Uh, two companies from the from the Army's 82nd Airborne Division are being deployed to Mosul to bolster security there at the request of the top American commander in Baghdad. So we're sending more of our guys out there closer to the front lines. Uh, are, are they going to have to play a major role in the aftermath of the removal of ISIS, you think? Or is the, are the security forces that they've trained up to do this fight in Mosul competent for what comes once ISIS, uh, once the Islamic State's been driven out of the streets? Well, the U.S. the U.S. forces that are going into Mosul are going into an advising assist role. What that means is they'll be embedded with a lot of these Iraqi units that are going into Mosul, but they're there to ensure that U.S. firepower is only used when we have verification from a U.S. soldier on the ground that indeed that building is a target that indeed those homes are a target, as opposed to having a, and, you know, I have to say this because the, the federal police are, are a predominantly Shia unit that's heavily infiltrated by an Iranian militia, a proxy militia in Iraq known as the Badr Corps, and the ISOF. The ISOF are, are great at clearing buildings and going after a target. They are not built to clear Western Mosul. That's not what the uh, special operations forces in Iraq are trained to do. Uh, this campaign heavily relies on uh, the Iraqi Gold Division, which is a special operations component of the Iraqi Army, and the federal police. Again, the federal police are not designed to go into a city and and, and clear it of, of a terrorist army. The army needs to do that, and the only Iraqi army unit that's participating effectively 
right now are the, is the 16th Iraqi Army Division, predominantly Shia, again, recruited out of Sadr City, and the 9th Iraqi Armored Division out of Baghdad that's predominantly Shia. And one of the I – just, I just watched a, a film with refugees coming out of Mosul, and their biggest concern is – Whoever stays here needs to be from here so they can protect us from ISIS, and they're complaining that the forces that are coming in aren't from Mosul, so they won't know who the bad guys are. They, they want a Sunni force to protect them. Uh, by the way, if, if we were to look at this uh, overall, if you were to, to give me an assessment of how the battle for Mosul has gone based on what expectations were going into this, uh, has this been a a well executed and and successful military operation given all the elements on the ground? Well, I would say that this is the first time the U.S. has been involved in in a, a counterinsurgency operation where the forces on the ground are not American led. Uh, this is an Iraqi operation where the U.S. role is to provide artillery support, special forces advisors, and support, and we're we're heavily reliant on Iraqi-generated intelligence. And when I say Iraqi, I'm talking about those, those uh, uh, predominantly Shia units to, to U.S. planners to be able to use jets and artillery to suppress the enemy. That works fine in eastern Mosul. That doesn't work in western Mosul where there's a population density. One ISIS fighter, you will kill 66 to 100 civilians just based on population population. Uh, and that's one of the biggest problems we have right now. So as far as Western Mosul and Prime Minister Abadi saying it's only going to take a couple, a couple weeks, Western Mosul is, is hard. I was there for a year when we had uh, American units on the ground, Iraqi, an Iraqi division. So we had roughly 20,000 U.S. trained and advised. Michael, we're having some comms issues, so we're going to have to leave it there for now. But Michael Pregent, adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, senior Middle East analyst. Michael, thank you for calling in. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks. Uh, team, phone lines open if you want to uh, get uh, some thoughts in before we close out the show. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We will be right back. There are protests going on in Russia. There's some media coverage of this. Uh, you have people in a uh, hundred cities and towns across Russia, which you know, is a very big place, as you know, uh, that are opposed to Kremlin corruption. And some of these protests, uh, well, the crackdowns on the protests get violent and nasty. And you had protest leader Alexei Navalny uh, arrested at one of them and charged with resisting arrest as well. He also has uh, been convicted of some trumped-up charge, which will prevent him from running for office, um, but he says he's going to run anyway. I just think that this is a particularly interesting— uh, this is an interesting storyline because we hear so much about uh, Russia and— the threat that Russia poses to us, and, and this has become such a, a hobby for the Democrats now to hype up the Russia threat in whatever way that they can. And here we have a movement in Russia that's supposed to be, well, it would like to hold Putin accountable for the corruption of his regime. And look, Russia's a nasty place. You know, Russia is, I mean, I sh when I mean nasty, I mean politically, you do not have the freedom to criticize the ruling regime. 
but the media's interest in this is is very is very much passing and peripheral. You'd think that if Putin was such a threat to us, and if Russia was engaged in this new Cold War level undermining of our democracy and our institutions, that there should be a real focus on well, how do we support these Russian protesters? What do we do? And I don't think you will see much of that at all, because the interest that the media has in Russia and the political happenings uh, of, of what's going on over there is opportunistic. They don't care what happens in Russia. They don't care about Russian oppression. I mean, maybe they talk to their friends at cocktail parties about it or something, but it doesn't really matter to them at all. Uh, speaking about Russia and the threats from it is just a means of talking about the Donald Trump illegitimate uh, election. That's what this is really. That's why they want to get into Russia so much. Now, what, what some interesting stuff that comes out though when you do look into these posts and what's going on in Russia right now, Putin has. And I know you could say the polling is probably very inaccurate because, well, I don't know how I don't know how easy it is to do polling in Russia. I assume there are a lot of people who uh, don't particularly want to go on record saying that they're anti-Putin. That's understandable. Uh, journalists and Kremlin critics have a have a had a very unfortunate history of either being killed under very suspicious circumstances or disappearing there. But if you believe the polling, he has something like 86 percent support among the Russian people, uh, which we would have to also see as a complete and utter failure of the eight years of Obama administration policy towards Russia before Trump took office. Remember, they the Russians did a number of aggressive. The Russian government did a number of very aggressive things while you had uh, President Obama in office. Uh, the seizure and annexation of Crimea. Uh, Russia had an irredentist itch there and decided to uh, scratch it by grabbing Crimea. And then you had Eastern Ukraine and the insurgency operations there that have all too many connections uh, to the Russian government. And, of course, the Syrian, mostly aerial operation, although there, I'm sure, was a fair amount of a Spetsnaz at work as well, Spetsnaz Russian Special Forces. All of that happening in the Obama administration, and we are supposed to believe that the sanctions regime that we had, Angela Merkel, hello, everybody, yes, Angela's back, the sanctions regime that the EU uh, joined with the U.S. to punish Russia for some of these foreign policy decisions, that that should turn, the whole purpose of that is to create a more uh, fragile economy that will then be blamed on Putin, hasn't worked at all. Uh, This is not an instance where you can point to any policy uh, success, and in fact, you can point to a lot of policy failures, because Putin is very popular in Russia. Uh, The Russian people overwhelmingly seem to support him, despite, and I know that, you know, there's, he is a thug, and he's cracks down on dissent, all this, which is which is all true, uh, but the Russian people like him. Part of that is just that he's presided over the creation, and you won't hear many commentators and others in the news talk about this. He's presided over the creation of a Russian middle class that did not exist before. Now, a lot of that was just the result of being the guy who's been in power for a long time after the fall of the wall, and privatization, at least partial privatization, I mean, Russian industries are still in some sense, uh, they're they're owned privately, but they are still doing the bidding and behest of the state in many cases. I mean, how Putin is worth 
all the money that he's worth is a whole separate and interesting line of inquiry that we could get into, I guess, another day. Uh, but the Russian people have seen a prosperity uh, that just as in this country, presidents get more credit for good economies and more blame for bad economies than they deserve. Uh, Putin certainly gets a lot more credit for the creation of Russian uh, consumerism, really. I mean, that th- th- this is not something that existed before, obviously, during the Soviet era. And in the post-Soviet collapse, there was a sense of disarray and anarchy that was prevailing in many parts of Russia. And so now you have this guy who, yeah, he rules with something of an iron fist, but there are a lot of people that like the iron fist. Uh, and they have a sense of nationalism. Yes, nationalism. I know we talk about that all the time, too. Uh, that Putin, uh, well, they feel like Putin is their guy and that he sees the interests of Russia and the Russian people as his own. And w- we can criticize him all day, and it's certainly worth criticizing a lot of the things that he does, especially at home, well, a- abroad, too. Um, But we need to understand that what we're dealing with here is a Russia that did not all of a sudden overnight become a military power, become armed with nukes, become belligerent towards its uh, neighbors, become uh, bellicose towards NATO allies. That's all been around for a long time. The the shift in the media narrative that's occurred with Russia is largely, almost entirely a result of what happened in their minds of the election and Hillary Clinton and that being... Election was stolen from her. Oh, she would have won if it wasn't for Putin. Oh, gosh. This is what they think and believe. So just keep, uh, we'll keep an eye on what's happening in Russia going forward. And, and one more thing. I mentioned this earlier in the show, and I didn't want to spend too much time on it. I think it's fascinating that the legging, these young girls were going to wear leggings on a United flight, and a whole social media controversy started over this over the weekend. I saw little bits and pieces of it. Uh, and obviously this is much less important than Russia and geopolitics, but I wanted to get in towards the end of the show. So you have these young girls that are not allowed to get on a flight because they're flying under United's employee uh, rider policy. Um, and they uh, were told they had to cover up a little bit more because there's a policy that says no bare midriffs and no spandex. And, and this immediately became uh, a cause for outrage. What I've realized, and then of course that the United's actually stood behind the policy and said, look, if you're, if you're flying on our plane, you, if you're a, just a customer, you can wear whatever you want. But if you're flying as an employee or as an employee benefit, uh, you have to abide by our dress code. Like a lot of businesses have dress codes of different kinds. But it was fascinating just to watch this play out. It's such a non-story, but the outrage that was generated online is incredible. Uh, what you realize is that people just like to find things to be outraged about. You know, I often see people that are talking about an, an issue and you realize it doesn't matter as long as they get to yell at somebody. As long as they can be upset at someone, as long as there's a bad guy, they are all caps on Facebook. This is terrible. Uh, the, the United United uniform policy. Oh, it was also sexist. They said for some reason because to have a uniform now or to have a dress code is, is sexist. I don't know. People are crazy. Uh, all right, download the uh, show on iHeart uh, on the iHeart app. Type in Buck Sexton with America Now. Also on iTunes. If you're listening, please download there. Subscribe there. Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. And uh, I'll be back with you tomorrow, same time. Shields high.